welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your guest host, Kayla Riapel. On this episode, we are turning the microphone around. Maintainable host, Robbie Russell, will be joining us from Portland, Oregon. Robbie is the CEO and partner at Planet Argon, a consultancy that focuses on making Ruby on Rails applications better and more maintainable. Robbie and I met at Planet Argon, where I work as a developer. Robbie is also a longstanding member of the Rails community and maintainer of the open source project, Oh My Z Shell. Welcome, Robbie Russell. It's so nice to have you on Maintainable. Thanks for being a guest on your show. Wow. Thanks so much for inviting me, Kayla. <laughs> you are welcome. Thank you also for inviting me. It's really nice to be here as well. I know I've been looking forward to this conversation. Kind of turn the mics around, but not mm-hmm. literally. <laughs> so based on your experience, what are some common characteristics of Maintainable software? That's a really great question, Kayla. So Maintainable software, you know, I've talked with a lot of people about this over the last year or so, but you know, if I were to think about just my own experiences as a software developer and someone that manages a team of software developers, I think about it in terms of like how, for lack of a better term, maybe easy or simple it is for people to make updates to an application and to get those up those changes out to a say production environment, for example. I feel like if there's a really cumbersome process for a developer to spin up a software that a piece of software that they've never worked on before, and maybe just provide some context. Since we're we work in a consulting agency world, uh, we usually take over or work on other people's software code that other teams have worked on, and we we inherit them. And so when we're starting to look at that project, and we we get the application running on say on our local laptop development environments, if that process is really cumbersome, just to get an environment that we can click around and play around with the application. Is there some good documentation for that part of the process so that people can quickly get up to speed and start making some meaningful contributions to the projects? And as like a really basic example, is like how hard is it for you to make a say a small copy change on an application? And so I think about that not just being the the maintainability of just the software application itself, but kind of the full process of rolling that out to a production environment wherever that's being hosted, whether that's on some servers or Heroku or you know, somewhere in the cloud or on someone's physical Mac machine and like sitting in a corner. I use that as an example because that literally happened on a project recently we were working on where they had an old Apple computer that's running their production applications inside an internal environment. And so that process was cumbersome and not a terribly maintainable process. So I do think a lot of it has to do with there's the, you know, like we could talk about testing and, you know, there's a lot of people that will dig into that. And I think that's important to know that when you're making changes, you're not hopefully not break, you're reducing the risk that something's going to break in the application. But also, can you make changes? Can you get those things pushed out? And then also, is there a good, some level of history about the application, whether that be through the source control management system, you know, if it's like you're using Git or something and look in the Git log. You know, it's a very common thing to look at the Git, Git log just to get a sense of how useful is the information there. So when you're making changes to an application, can you get some context or have some narrative for why things are the way they are right now? Because you can't always assume that the people that you're working with on the client side, they understand their application entirely either because they might have come into the project later on. So it's kind of it relies on documentation, relies maybe to some degree on testing 
just on the process of pushing things out, if there's some clarity, how readable the code base is, and if it's really painful just to make those kind of small changes, then I can only assume that's going to be really difficult to make bigger architectural changes as well in the system. So there's also thinking about when you run the application, can you just get the application up and running with some C data versus maybe needing to rely on like connecting to a production database snapshot, which is also maybe a cumbersome or maybe not always an option as well. So I know it's kind of a long-winded answer there, but there's a lot of th- like traits of maintainable software. And those are a few things that I tend to think impact our team the most. What I'm hearing is that a lot of the traits are connected to, you know, what it's like to orient yourself inside of the code base, the lifespan of fixing something and interacting with a change. And then also just being able to read and comprehend what's going on. It sounds like, you know, really it's the perspective of someone who isn't familiar with it coming to the software that has a a lot to do from your perspective about whether it's maintainable or not. As a, say, Ruby on Rails developer, can I work on this other Ruby on Rails application effectively? You know, there's a benefit of using frameworks. Occasionally, we might see an application that comes our way that is written with Ruby on Rails, but maybe they didn't really adhere to or understand or appreciate the some of the built-in opinions and, say, best best practices or conventions of the Ruby on Rails community. And so those projects tend to stand out and be difficult to work on and thus, therefore, difficult to maintain because maybe there was kind of like a different opinion there that was baked into how the previous developers or developer worked on the application. So that could be a limiting factor too. But it is, for me, a big part of how difficult is, I think, use a good term there is orienting yourself to the application, onboarding people to the project, I think is important. Like in general, most Ruby on applications should be follow some sort of pattern that you kind of know where to look for things. And that's helpful at least if, to remove yourself from needing to worry about where you expect to find things. And you can just focus on, say, the the business domain of that particular application and understand the organization that had the application built, why they need that to be built the way it is so that it delivers the value that they're looking for. So some things is like consistency in software in order to make it more accessible for developers to participate in. The Ruby on Rails framework, yeah, really focuses on that. And that's one thing that I've found really comforting while working on more Rails applications. Ruby is kind of interesting in that it only has a limited number of frameworks involved. How do you think that that contributes to the way that the community works and the direction that the language is going? Hmm. Just for some context, prior to work, I mean, I've been working with Ruby on Rails for, what is it, a little over 15 years and some change, I think, now. Prior to that, I was working with PHP. I worked with Perl. I worked with Python. Uh, I worked in .NET as well prior to that. And some of those environments, like specifically PHP, was a bigger... I was really into... I was really excited about working on PHP for several years prior to coming across Ruby or being introduced to Ruby on Rails. There were a lot of kind of cobbled together things back then in the PHP world. There was a couple of frameworks, but nothing really as well organized, say, as Rails was at the time. But it always meant that every time I worked on a different PHP application, there'd be like a lot of different ways that it could be implemented. And so I started building in my own tool set of like, all right, if I'm going to build some new things, here's some ways to optimize how I interact with the database. So I kind of had like a little tool that was a little bit kind of like a really micro version of, say, active record as a basic level. So I'm like, all right, I need to fetch, save data into a database table, and here's a way to do that. And I had a layer for that. And then Ruby on Rails, active record admittedly was one of the things that I fell in love with. 
And then I think over the arc of the last 15 years of my experience in the Ruby and the Rails community is there's been, you know, a handful of different frameworks and different opinions. Like sometimes there's people that think Ruby on Rails might be a little too big or maybe bloated in some ways. It offers too much and it continues to add on new things over the years. The people building the framework believe are valuable to a decent number of people that are going to be using it. And so there's been these splinter projects, like there was an era where MERP was a different framework at one point. There's some small, like kind of more static site generator type tools in Ruby. There's There are a number of frameworks, but it seems like by and large, we tend to fold those ideas back into Ruby on Rails. And I think my experience, and, I, and I'm not working in PHP on a regular basis, but I know that there's a number of similar competing frameworks in, say, the PHP community, in the Python community, and other languages there, because there's... There's always this kind of, I, I, my perception is that there's a sense of solution approach where there's more of a, I have a better idea on how to do this. And so that kind of motivates the idea of like, I'm going to go create my own new framework. And I think there is a, a kind of a different aspect within the Ruby community where that we're more likely to say, let's all try to work together and it can to, to adhere to some conventions. And maybe Rails is just different because of, for some other reason, maybe I'm kind of making a wrong conclusion here, but it seems to me that, like, especially with the JavaScript community, there's a lot of competing frameworks trying different things. And that's really healthy, I think, in some levels. But it's also really overwhelming, I think, for people coming into industry to like, well, which one should I use? Should I be investing in Angular? Should I be investing in React? Should I be investing in Ember or or these smaller things like Vue? And like, I, I can listen to all these different JavaScript frameworks now. And then there's, then there's layers on top of this. Like, should I be using Gatsby? Should I be using... You know, there's, there's so many choices that it, that becomes a, I think, a very paralyzing decision for people, teams that need to make, especially and or for developers to even to navigate that in terms of like, where am I going to spend some of my own personal professional development time on? Like, I want to go learn more about this. And I'm like, am I going to go down the ra wrong rabbit hole and potentially and have to learn something new at some point? You're always going to have to learn new things. But I think there's there's a lot of competing things that I think it, there's a lot of it's like going to the grocery store and there's just being too many types of tomato sauce to choose from. So what are you going to look for? Maybe the, I guess maybe it depends on your budget, but I don't know that we look at say frameworks in the same way, but the, there is a level of, I, I do think that the Ruby community has historically continued to like bake in and all kind of collectively go, let's keep working on making Ruby on Rails better rather than trying to splinter off and fork these different and, and deviations and maybe that's just a good sense of leadership in that community versus other ones you know i know that some of those other frameworks especially in the javascript world are primarily driven by some large corporations and maybe that's an interesting angle ruby on rails wasn't really created by a large organization it was created by a small organization that's well known to some degree but they're not uh, microsoft or a facebook or a google competing with each other over which tool stack to use in the open source community. So there, it's it's an interesting challenge, I think, to kind of weigh that stuff up. And um, so I think there's a lot of things that go into that. But I, I haven't found a framework that I felt like we could be exponentially faster or more efficient with over the last 15 years. Or maybe I'm just stubborn and sticking with Ruby on Rails. It's kind of a funny situation with tech where it feels like I notice this in my own tech habits that I will sometimes vacillate between, you know, having my eyes open to all of the new possibilities and being really connected to tech as this unfolding, evolving thing and trying to stay on the cutting edge. And that ends up getting balanced with maybe some kind of Luddite inside me that really likes the tech that I know and understand and wants to work to make that better. I think that 
yeah, you're pointing out something really key about not only developers, but the code bases that we work within, where it does feel like there's kind of this push and pull between breaking new ground and thinking about things in new ways, like with JavaScript versus trying to find a community consensus and make, you know, maybe incremental decisions and changes like in the Ruby and Rails community. I, I, I agree with that. I think there, I think it's interesting for developers now where am I working on a technology stack that's going to die or die out or not be relevant at some point? And that is that going to hurt my in my career? So there's kind of this level of keeping up with the perception of what other people are doing. And that's maybe something filling my, I, I've been using this phrase around like resume driven development in a way of like, we, like, I think there's developers that want to use new and shiny things because they want to stay relevant and up to speed. Because I think the reality is we in our community talk a lot about new stuff more than existing stuff. So there's yours. There's always a plethora of new intro guides on things. And they're always going to be about more often than not new things than about here's an intro guide to Ruby on Rails. I mean, those exist, but they're probably not anywhere at this, the same level they were you know, 12 to 15 years ago for Ruby on Rails. Now you have this for a bunch of JavaScript. So when you see this in social media and posting and what's what's hot and talking about and the trends, it's hard not to like look over and be like, oh, what are, what are we missing out on here? And I don't know whether or not it's it's worthwhile to go explore those things or not. And so I can't say that with any sort of certainty there outside of their, if you have a desire for curiosity there and building new things. But then also a lot of those intro guides are, it's about how to build new things. And I think one of the reasons behind even this podcast to start in the first place was that I feel like we're not spending enough time in our community talking about the stuff that's already there and how to make the existing stuff better. Because the reality is most businesses can't afford and or may not be successful just replacing it with something new because that's a huge investment. And then that's because they're always going to ask, am I going to have to do this again? And how many years will that take? You know, how long will this working on this new JavaScript framework get us? Is that going to, we're getting a couple of years or are you going to change your mind in three to five years? Cause there's some new shiny thing and we have to keep rebuilding it every several, every few years. And that's just not very sustainable either. So there's, I think I would like to see more conversations about the challenges of working through the messy parts of projects and making things better and extending the life. I think it's an important aspect of our career, our, our, our industry that we don't maybe talk about enough, I think. Well, that just ended up forking into two roads. Which one do I want to go down first? I guess let's let's go back to the podcast. So you've you've talked with about over 50 people now about maintainability. Could you talk a little bit about why you just started to start the Maintainable podcast and if your goals have changed since you got things rolling? My initial idea behind the podcast was to, one, I just wanted to have more conversations with what I believe are far smarter people than me on a regular basis. And I get that benefit of working with a lot of great people on my team here at Planet Oregon, but also just wanting to talk with people in different, especially other tech stacks, I think would also be really important. And uh, I know that a number of the people I've spoken with are from the Ruby and Rails community, maybe 15, 20% of them, but I really wanted to talk with people that are working different programming languages just to kind of get away from the the bubble of my Ruby Rails centric mode that I've been, this bubble that I've been in for the last 15 years. And so that's that's been part of it. So one, it was kind of like selfishly just wanting to get to talking about other people, about these kind of pain points related to working on an older code bases because it, it interests me. And the because my own career tra- trajectory has always been working on existing code bases, and it, it didn't really occur to me until a couple of years ago. I'm like, that's actually where I feel like I've enjoyed the most when I've been working on any sort of code myself has been making updates to existing stuff and figuring out how something works that's already exists versus building something new. And so 
when I came to that realization, I was like always looking around for books and people that were talking about this. And I found a, like a couple of podcasts and there's a number of authors that have written good books on this stuff. But I was like, I just felt like maybe there's a way to contribute to this conversation a little bit more. And I'd like to have those conversations in public. That was part of the original goal. And after having spoken with over 50 people now, I actually worried that I was going to run out of topics with people or maybe another way to phrase that. I worried that I wasn't going to be able to come up with enough interesting different topics. And what I found is that I actually am finding that I'm having the same topics quite often with different people, but everybody has slightly different takes on it. And that's been an interesting thing. I worried that people listening would be like, oh, you're going to ask these few questions every single time. That's going to get boring really quickly, but I'm actually seeing some feedback. I mean, there's there's potentially maybe there's a little bit of bias on the people that are actually willing to probably review a positive review, but they pointed that out as like, they appreciate that it's consistent topics with different people as being the good variable there versus every episode trying to have a different theme necessarily. And so I can definitely cater that to the specific authors if they're in management or if they're like product owners or something like that. And wanted to also talk, realizing that I can also talk with people about this stuff that aren't software developers. And that's that's been an interesting angle too. It's like, let's hear the other people that are part of maintaining software that aren't actually maybe writing code day in and day out. Uh, or maybe they're a few steps away from that, but they have a lot of influence over that and hear their perspective, like a product, you know, speaking with like product owners and or QA people in particular. And that's that's been helpful to kind of get a more of a well-rounded. And I feel like I'm learning more about how maybe we can improve our team structure just off it. So it's in some ways I'm getting some free advice in a way. So I'm selfishly taking advantage of that. And I'm hoping other people can find some value in that as well. And so like long term, it's uh it's an it's been an interesting project and I've it's been far smoother of a process of finding interesting, talented people. Uh, pro tip, if you're looking to start your own podcast and you're worried about finding people, once you start finding the first 10 to 20 people to be on the podcast, they are your best people to ask for who else you should speak to. And so almost everybody that I've spoken to was referred to me via previous guest. So that's been really helpful as well. Do you think your goals have changed for the podcast since it's gotten started? I think the, you know, as I was saying, my initial goal was to hopefully have this public facing conversation with different people in the community. I foreseeing continuing a similar path for a while with similar types of topics and questions with people, but I would like to maybe evolve it a little bit more. I realizing that, you know, I'm talking with other people and it's nice to, uh, I think take this time, like maybe a slight break now with, you know, with, to talk with you today where I can kind of be on the other end of the conversation. And I'm realizing that, I'm curious about finding some interesting ways to have multiple guests on the show to talk and maybe get some different ideas about things. I've, you know, been considered, I pitched some ideas for conferences, but, you know, obviously some of the conferences aren't happening at the moment now in terms of like hosting panel conversations related to these topics. So can people get people in real time can bounce off maybe different perspectives. And I'm like, how to, I haven't figured out how to technically and logistically sort that out from being a, being a host of a podcast, but I'm curious about that. And also the idea of bringing in like guest hosts, I think would be also interesting. So it's not just Robbie's project, but, you know, seen as more of like a team project for here at the company as well. And, and, and trying to maybe branch off into some other splinter topics and things like that. And, or maybe theming some areas. Like I remember I spoke with someone last year about documentation in particular. And I was like, Oh, it'd be interesting to have a couple episodes with different people focused on that topic for you know a couple of weeks or something, or, 
and or maybe comp- compiling some of those uh, conversations into, I know that's just more of a complicated editing process, but I'm curious about those types of things. But I'm, I'm curious to just kind of expand that a little bit just to have some more more voices in the in the room at the same time, I suppose. Nice. Well, that's a lot to look forward to in terms of the podcast continuing to shape and grow. To shift gears a little bit, you mentioned earlier you've been in the industry for about 20 years and that you prefer to work on existing applications instead of building new ones. When did you realize this preference? It was a couple years ago. There's another podcast called uh, Legacy Code Rocks, and it was actually before I came across their podcast, uh, Corgi Bites, the, the folks that, that create that. But they they had an article called Menders versus Bankers, and I remember when I read it, I was like, "Holy shit, that's me! I'm um, I'm not a maker. I don't really enjoy working on new software projects. A great blank canvas stresses me out." I think there's a lot of decisions to make then. Also, just maybe it could be reflective of just me running a business and going, I'm not the best person probably to be starting a new Rails application anymore. I haven't generated a new Rails application in probably over a decade. And that's probably for the best. Because when I do that, that probably means that we're going to have some weird little pet project that the team is going to have to be responsible for maintaining. And I'm only going to do enough to then get out of the way. And then someone else has to take over that. And then at some point, it'll probably just stop being used because... It was one of my silly weekend ideas. But anyways, I think since then, I've like looked back over my arc as a developer and realizing it was just like I realized that a lot of my early era aspects of programming were not usually starting with a brand new application. It was almost always diving into something that already exists. So early on in the my open source era, so like in, say, 1999, 2001, two era, I would run a number of websites that were using open source technology, usually like PHP applications or some Perl applications. And they were usually some pre-built thing that I needed to figure out how to make changes to. I wanted to redesign how it looked. I wanted to add some new functionality. And so it was a lot of like, okay, I got 90% of what I want. I need to figure out how to customize the next 10, 15% or whatever of this application. And so I always had to figure out how to work within that environment. And my, my first paying software developer job. I, you know, basically landed a job and I was basically someone trained me for a few days on how to create these web pages with an ASP. And I basically I was editing existing things, copy and pasting these folders, making a bunch of changes to things and trying to customize it. And so it was always about copy pasting, editing, changing things, figuring out how things used to work, looking at other code, spending a lot of time reading other people's code, maybe that they may or may not longer be at the company. I just found that I've had a certain knack for debugging things. So, you know, as a freelancer, I've, you know, people would contact me and be like, hey, I have this Perl application and it's, it's causing some issues. Just having to be like, I don't know how all this works, but I can jump in and figure out how to like diagnose a problem and then solve it. And I found that solving those types of problems kind of got the, the, the right sort of uh, endorphins triggered or whatever that I, was, I really enjoyed I would say they're not quick to fix, but it would be like those one or two line changes that need to, to make to fix something versus building out hundreds of lines of code of some new functionality and making sure it works end to end. That stuff never really, you know, looking back, I don't think I was as excited about that. I think I thought I was maybe interested in doing that, but those were big, long projects. And I'm like, there's people that really enjoy that process and I'm not that person. And I'm like, I want the quick fix win things and kind of get move on to the next challenge. And I, I want quick, kind of rapid feedback in, in a, I think in a certain way. And there's other people that are really good at kind of working on the longer, more thoughtful process. Um, and I don't know if that maybe that's a little bit just based off of my time constraints with my role within an organization at times, but 
but there has always been that kind of common thread. I looked over the, you know, as I thought over the years, I'm like, no, I've, I've kind of always been that type of developer. And I wouldn't say I'm a great software developer because of that, because I'm, I know enough to be dangerous in a lot of things, but I'm not like super deep in a, in a few things. Maybe there's, there's a few things, but for the most part, I'm like, I'm not a good, probably wouldn't be a good contributor on a, on a product team to build out new features as I would be of like maybe working in the customer service side of a, of a product or something where I like, just be responsible for digging into bugs and squashing those or something like that. I get more excited about that type of work personally. Enjoying working on bugs means you've faced a lot of technical hurdles. And enjoying working on existing applications means that you've probably dealt with a lot of older code bases. What are some of the technical hurdles you've had to climb over in those spaces? I think data tends to be one of the biggest challenges. And we don't know, I don't think we maybe talk about that enough in our industry as well. But so let's just take, a, for example, if a, if a software project comes our way and we get the application running locally in our environment, like, you know, I would say more often than not, like the application doesn't run if there's not some data in the database to populate some even details for the homepage or something like that, or, or a login screen or something, or you need a user account to sign in and to test some stuff. So there's, there's a lot of projects that like lack seed data. And so in those scenarios where you have a large application, or an application that has a big database behind it, say, in production, if that application doesn't have a good method for having some sort of staging slice of the database that you can work with in a local development environment, that can be a really big, challenging problem, too. So, And it requires sometimes like live debugging. And so that, that can be sometimes a really tricky thing where you know, you might be working with a client like, hey, we're having this issue, we need you to help. Maybe it's a performance issue or we're hitting some bugs or we need to work on a new feature, but that feature relies on there being a lot of access to existing data. That's a challenge for, I think, teams to, to, to navigate. And so, you know, there's, you know, some hacky workarounds like connecting to production database or maybe getting a snapshot of the production database. But, you, you know, I think a lot of companies probably would cringe if they heard that, they have their live production database getting copied over to some freelancer or agency's computers or getting copied into some other database somewhere where they have production data. That, that's, that could be a huge data security privacy issue, right? So, But it, we've seen it happen, and sometimes it's, like it's the only way you can really move forward there. And so then there's a lot of precautions you need to take for that. So that, that, that's one sort of challenge I think that I've encountered a lot. There's those issues where I think when you're working on existing projects and maybe you're working on some new features for a client and it's, they're a new to you client, but they've had this application for say a decade and you've made a few updates and then two or three months down the road, the system crashes one day. But outside of maybe a few small deploys, you haven't really wrapped your head around the whole system at that point because maybe, but the client expects you to be able to figure it out at that moment. So that that can think that could be a really challenging hurdle to work through. Those sometimes those crashes are. When you learn the most about it, and so that's a good, I guess, educational, teachable moment for your team to document, like, what did you learn through this experience? Like, oh, there's these other third-party systems involved or in the application that you weren't really connecting with. There's like, there's a lack of error reporting if something goes down, like a third-party API is not working. And then the client's like, we're just seeing a 500 error. And how, how long does it take you to figure that out, why that's happening? So those can be definitely some pretty common hurdles that pop up. And it's funny, I, I I secretly wish that those things could happen earlier on in a relationship 
between developers and clients, at least in the consulting world, because I think that's when you work through the process of not only figuring out and solving these, but also showing your client that you can solve those issues when something goes wrong. Because it's usually one of the biggest fears a potential client might have when they're talking to you. Like I was on a sales call this morning with someone and their biggest concern was their three hours time difference and they work in the education sector. And let's say they're like, well, we might have people on the East Coast at like 5, 30, 6 o'clock starting their day. And you folks are, that's like 8, maybe 8 a.m. your time or the opposite. That's 2 a.m. in Portland, Oregon. And they might hit an issue. How quickly could your team respond to that? And even though it's like a hypothetical, it, it will probably happen at some point. But the, those are still concerns that you know clients have when they're when they're talking. So even in this remote world, there's still constraints of just like, are people awake to, or how would they be notified there'd be this issue? And could you quickly respond and, and, and remedy that? Cause it would look bad for me as a business owner to not be able to say like, well, sorry, our developers are still sleeping for the next three hours. Please be patient. So I think those sorts of things could also be kind of a, a thing to overcome, but a lot of that's just communication and just setting up some good processes around that, I think as well. So you mentioned communication as as one approach. Do you think that you have an approach like when you find yourself faced with a bug to overcome it? Well, there's a I think it's always about pattern recognition I think in some ways and like I feel like there's been we've had conversations internally like maybe Robbie could document his thinking when there's a type a certain type of bug pops up or how do you debug things and there's like a, I think there's this weird thing of mean it's difficult for me to say how do how do I get that out of my head and it's like it's like a there's like a dictionary of information and some of it's visual some of it's just I recognize things when I see it and that not I can't probably just export it all to uh, Confluence documentation as, or or a video as as much as I wish I could and maybe other people wish I could so I think it's part of it is just getting the experience of knowing that you are going to encounter those things. I think the the a difference is is that I know that those things will pop up and but I think I didn't know that going into becoming a software developer it was just like there was no one else to call for help and so for many years as a freelancer or earlier on in the company there wasn't anyone really else to really dig into stuff and so it was just a lot of like just being thrown into the, like when things would go wrong like well there's no one to talk to you so I guess I just got to keep hitting my head against the wall until I figure it out. So I think there's, if there's one thing I suppose is just trying to get comfortable with the idea that it may take a couple hours learning how to manage your client's expectations through that process. So, I mean, there's definitely been, I can think, I used to have this really large client. It was our largest client and they were eight hour time difference for us. And I would get calls at, I want to say two, three o'clock in the morning, my time, because it'd be the start of their day. And they're like, Hey, our search system isn't working. And I would get waking up out of bed. I'm like, okay, I'll be online in 15 minutes. And I might spend four hours trying to figure something out about why search stopped working in the middle of the night for some reason. Over time, I learned to like come up with some other ways to like try to detect when those things would happen and, and document that as best I could or add little workarounds or ways to try to get things to restart themselves if they stopped working. But, you know, I think about those types of scenarios, like I just had to be exposed to it. And so one of the things I try to remind, you know, folks like you on the team and other people on our team is just, it's like, that's, that's okay. Like there's, there's no expectation. Like the client's always going to be like as soon as possible, but it's also like, it's okay to say, I don't know quite what's going on yet, but I'll keep you updated. And I think the hardest part about debugging those types of issues is managing 
the expectations of other people and feeling like you're worried about disappointing them because you, you're not, maybe you perceive yourself as being clever enough to sort of find the solution yet, but that's, we're problem solvers and we're, we're sometimes we don't know what the problem is right away. So I think that's, that could be a challenge, but there are a lot of tools that we can use that's helpful for developers to spend time, especially with web applications. And then those are like, there's a lot of command line tools, like learning how to use curl as an example, like just like knowing how to like diagnose, like where you think in the layers of like, cause talking about some of our projects, we, we might have a Ruby on rails application and that's running on some EC2 servers. And we might have a load balancer in front of that. We might have, or and across multiple, we might have multiple EC2 instances. We might have a load balancer in front of that. So then, then there might be like something like CloudFront or Akamai in front of that. There could be there could be a web application firewall somewhere in there. Mix. There might be three or four layers before a request cycle even hits the Rails application that could be inter- could be messing with the request or maybe the response cycle. And so that stuff can be tricky to figure out. How do you diagnose those steps along the way? Because it might always. I think you probably had that's been your experience. Is like it may not just be the Rails application. It could be something else is manipulating something or something's breaking along the way of that process. And so I think some of that could be how do you can you de- debug this in your development environment? Obviously, is helpful. But I think those those types of tools are like figure out how to use like to diagnose the other tools and that stuff just takes time to. I didn't have to learn all that stuff when I started building and debugging these things because we those a lot of those other layers have been added over the course of my life as a software developer. So they didn't all exist. You know, 15 years ago, I didn't use load balancers. Well, I probably did, but there weren't like a lot of caching layers in front of things. Like those are things we've since added, and so we kind of maybe so through the part of the process of understanding why those got added when they did and how they helped like, oh, here's a new thing. I've never seen this. Like, oh, when that happens, maybe it's this new layer that's impacting things. So I think maybe I, I feel for people coming in the industry now because there's a lot more layers. Not that there weren't a lot of layers then. It's just there's even more layers now. And I foresee there being even more layers in the future as we're moving to, say, more microservices and other you know things and how things get. An application system is a lot. There's a lot of pieces now. And that's a lot for a small team or like one person to try to keep all in their head at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. That really resonates with me. The challenges of not only managing a client's expectations, but my own expectations when I'm debugging something because getting worked up about it isn't necessarily going to help resolve it. And then also, you know, the stack of an application, all of the layers involved from the code base to, you know, it being served to a user, that space is changing really quickly. And it's been such a challenge to pick up all of the pieces along the way and and keep learning and growing with those things. I'm curious how, how do you as, you know, I'm, I'm intentionally asking you because I kind of know a little bit of behind the scenes there, but how do you processize that when, when you work through an issue? Do you have a process that you follow for capturing that information or for future reference in your head? Or what, what's your kind of, strategy there? So my strategy is something that I think really helped get me through code school. I'm a, I'm a boot camp graduate, and that's what brought me to code. And the way that the curriculum was structured for me 
was very much based on procedures and building things up from the beginning and starting from, you know, being able to see your very first step as you continued on. I think it might have helped that as I was going to code school, I was also working as a baker. And so I was working with recipes daily and processes and going through those procedures. So when I'm faced with a bug or trying to processize something, I try to write down every step that I do. So I'll maybe put something in my terminal, run a command, and then paste that someplace else. If I notice that I haven't been doing that at some point in the process, then I'll use something like history in my terminal and take a look at everything that I've run so far. But I think the the goal there is kind of trying to create the recipe or the story of, of what I have done and then reflecting on that after the fact to see what was meaningful, what maybe created the changes, and then uh, saving that for future use. I've always been a really big note taker and writing things down is kind of the way that I that I learn things. And so I found it really invaluable to have my own notes to refer back to and the questions that I've asked myself. Like it's almost like having a conversation with myself as well is, well, what could I do next here? And then if I find an article, you know, and search for something, adding the links to those articles there and my own notes, I just try to share into a public space so that somebody else could maybe access them and find benefit from them later on. Nice. And do you, when you try things and let's say, let's say you try a solution, it doesn't work. Do you then remove it from your notes or do you still capture that as like, I did try this, but this didn't do it. So I don't, so you don't. Yeah, no, I think I, I usually keep it in my notes. Um, it might not end up in the final thing that I share with other folks, unless it's something where I noticed it was a rabbit hole that like I really believed in that was going to help me and it didn't. Or I maybe learned something through that process about how it could connect to a different kind of bug or a different error. So I had something recently where I was dealing with an error um, related to SSL certificates. And I thought that one thing was going on. And I learned a lot about that one approach on how to, you know, reformat those SSL certificates. However, I realized that I was actually dealing with a different problem. And so because it was in the SSL space, I saved that article and the benefit that it had to me and kind of what I learned with it and then put it in there as kind of like a, if you're seeing this issue, this could be something that could help. That's some good advice. Do you feel like there is a uh, anything I know you mentioned about documenting procedures there that's been helpful for you and like as you you know as your baker I'd forgotten about that aspect about you do you feel like you've been a thorough note taker for quite a while and like do you feel like that's there's something about your past or how you was this something you you were re- really thorough with during your education cycle or something like that because I'm, I'm always curious I know people are like I'm not really good at taking notes and I'm curious how to like encourage other people on the team or other developers to learn how do you take advantage of that as a skill set, maybe. It's funny, these questions are kind of connecting to uh, the different stories of my life that have led into web development. I was an aspiring documentary filmmaker and journalist um, when I got started my first career. And that process, I think I became really interested in what people were saying. As as a child, I had really great instruction on uh, typing and became a very fast typist. And so when I went to college, I almost was transcribing the lectures that I was attending. And that was kind of my way of participating in them. And I noticed that as I was transcribing them, I would memorize more about what was going on. And then it was from that process of transcribing that I later would create my flashcards or something like that that I would use to study. 
my thought pattern is pretty verbal or I don't know, I, I imagine words. And so I think in terms of taking notes, it's kind of um, taking that process of the conversations that you have with yourself when you're trying to solve a problem and just having them with a text file instead, instead of just keeping it in your head, maybe taking that extra moment to chat with yourself almost in in that document. That's great. Um, it's one of the things we I definitely have appreciated about collaborating with you on is you're very good at that. And I, I don't want to overly lean on you for that, but think, thinking about how you can be a good uh, role model, I think, for other people on the team, for sure. Well, thank you. That actually leads into a question. Maybe we should provide a little bit of context about Planet Argon. Could you tell the folks listening about what the the company is? Great question. So Planet Argon is a... Ruby on Rails consulting agency is kind of like, I think that's something we can say amongst ourselves as developers. How we talk about that externally with our clients is that we, we help companies with existing Ruby on Rails applications make them better and more maintainable. So a lot of that means is that we're, we're, we tend to be this for companies that have a Ruby on, Ruby on, existing Ruby on Rails application that maybe they've worked with a couple of freelancers in the past, we're kind of a step up from them from just working with freelancers and they don't want to have to go through the process of retraining someone else about their application and understanding what the business, how their business model works there. And maybe they're not big enough of an organization or don't have any interest of maybe having their own internal software development team. So more often than not, we're kind of filling this kind of sweet spot between we have a project that needs more support than an individual contributor can do, but we're not we're not ready or we have no intention of building out a full development team ourselves. And not to say that we don't work with some clients that also have their own development teams, but those are more on consultative side of things. We, we're not like a staff augmentation company. You know, occasionally we'll do some work like that, but for the most part, we're we're being called in to help a team improve how they're approaching things internally. So let's say you're several versions behind on a Ruby on Rails application. You're you're struggling as a team to prioritize that amongst working on new features and bug fixes and updates. And you've you've might have gone down this the rabbit hole of having one or two of your developers create a new branch, start trying to go down the path of creating a new, uh, upgrading the application for a couple of days. All of a sudden, a bunch of you know tests, they have thousands of tests are failing and they're like, okay, I'm gonna have to come back to this another day because this is just too much to figure out. So one of the things that we're starting to do more of talking more about is figuring out how we can help those teams work through those problems themselves because I think a lot of them, at some point, will just say, kind of throw their hands up and kind of put it off for a really long time. And then they might reach out to a team like us to be like, hey, can you just handle the upgrade entirely for us and just pass it back? And it's been our experience that that, that can work, but we also don't think that you're, as a team, learning how to actually just maintain and keep things updated at the same time because if you haven't figured that process out yet, then maybe a team like us can help you implement some processes for that so that you're not dependent on going out to an external team to just kind of do the heavy lifting. Because we also know that the big problem long-term is that once we need to get through a big part of that process, we're also not the experts in your project. So you're going to be hitting problems of, we're going to need way more of your time than you probably think you do as well, just to be involved because you're your code's still being worked actively worked on. And at some point we got to merge things and you got to be responsible for it. And that process takes a while and it's very messy. And we're of the mindset now that we would much rather help you figure out how to help your team do this. And we can help you be part of that process and get you get, get the processes in place, but kind of becoming an advocate for those teams should be more responsible for that themselves and work through those painful 
phases now rather than putting it off. Because the reality is if you do outsource it, if you think that you can keep it updated at that point going forward, I would imagine you're probably not going to drastically change your processes internally to say on a regular basis, keep updating the application on a regular, you know, the way that you, you think you would, because there's no one responsible for it. You don't have the procedures in place for that. I think that it touches on kind of your unique role at Planet Argon, where you're CEO, partner, and also interim engineering manager. Sometimes you're writing code. A lot of times you're directing sales and strategy. In this role, have you seen any similarities between writing maintainable software and crafting a maintainable development agency? That's a that's a tough question and a good one. Um, I think you know as I'm thinking through this. I think challenging question. The there is a there is a sense of process and procedures and roles that come into play on any software project. So I'm learning over the years. I'm I'm kind of like an anarchist by nature, and so I've always resisted a lot of process. But I've had to realize that like not everybody thinks the way I do. Some people really need process. Some people need a little bit of process, and there's some people that really resist process. And somehow you have to have all those different types of people work together in a in a shared work environment. Some of our clients really want us to have a lot of rigorous, thorough process. Other clients are pretty relaxed about it and don't really want to be held to a process themselves in some ways. So it kind of, we have all these different people kind of playing together. And I think that does reflect in how we're trying to manage our own organization. Like I'm I'm finding that over the last several years that I really appreciate just some consistency and like say, for example, how meetings are run. As a, and I, I think the more everybody can can anticipate how those meetings will be run and organized, the more you can get in a routine and be like, okay, I know I can use this meeting effectively if it's run in a consistent fashion. And so we, we have some processes here for how we handle certain types of meetings. Not all of them are always cons- consistent, but there are some ones that I think are valuable because there's some consistency. And I think there's a value in having some consistency in your some of your development processes as well. So if we can get better at how we're managing the pull request process and like what how should a pull, the life cycle of a pull request work, the more we can see that that's a more consistent thing, everybody kind of gets a feel for, okay, this is the routine we go through. It becomes easier. You don't have to think about it too much because you're kind of a little bit more on autopilot because you expect there's some nice guardrails there. And so, and then in the, in the code base, if you can also monitor and, and some sort of like, or at least track some sort of metrics about the, like we do on the business level, we might be tracking like sales and our effective utilization and different information that helps us know how healthy the organization's running. It's an interesting thing because you can also become very data-driven, but I think there's always sometimes that data lacks context, so you have to kind of add the context on top of it. So I've also I'm not a someone that believes data first always because I think there's a lot of nuance to the data. Like, well, you know, that number looks that way because of X, Y, and Z. Is something if there's caveats to explain numbers because that's, there's other things that aren't we haven't figured out how to how do you make those numbers a little less sub- subjective, I suppose. I do wonder how we can find ways to reduce some of the subjectivity about how healthy a code base is by using tools to help automate some of the things that we don't need to be maybe as opinionated about. For example, if if things are violating your, if you're running linters and tools like that to help remove those conversations from a pull request, I think. So, okay, you're not using the right syntax here. Can we automate that so that it's a computer telling you that versus your coworker needing to tell you that? And I think that can we can do similar things on the business la- layer as well to be like, hey, you know, there's something out of whack here with how we're tracking something on the business level. It doesn't need to be like a this is my opinion. Like we just have something we have like a smart metric here that's telling something is off. 
let's have a conversation about it. And if if there's an issue there we need to address and we can talk about it. So yeah, I think there's there are some similarities, but I don't think I've maybe given it enough thought to have like a super thorough and concise answer there for you. I think the the things kind of the themes that I'm hearing are that, you know, having consistency in place, which I think has really resonated with my experience of working at Planet Argon between the the business processes, the code bases, and and even the tools that we're using that kind of connect the two between the the business processes and the and the writing code. I, I feel like that helps me feel much more productive when I'm working. And behind the scenes, I mean, uh, software applications are chaotic pretty much all organizations are a little chaotic. And so in some level, a lot of those those layers of processes are to help smoothen out some of the chaos so that it's a little less chaotic day in and day out because I mean, behind I mean, the business organizations are chaotic by nature. And it's just, there's a bunch of people trying to figure out how to work together. And these are some tools that we have to help smooth that out, but it doesn't mean that there's still not some chaos here and there. Our special guest host, Kayla, will be back with her interview with me in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening to Maintainable Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone that we should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, Kayla returns with an interview with Robbie Russell. Yes, me. So to switch gears, you're also a maintainer of a large open source project that I'm going to specifically avoid saying the name because I'm not sure if I'll pronounce it correctly. Could you share the name of the project and what your role is in it these days? I pronounce it Oh My Z Shell, or for our European friends uh, or English friends, Oh My Z Shell. I've heard Oh My Z quite a bit. So it's Z shell because it's I think it's literally Z shell is how Z shell is, itself is spelled. So only Z shell is an open source framework for managing your Z shell configuration. So if you open up a terminal on your computer in your console, you might be running Bash or Z shell. Um, Z shell is now the default in Catalina on on the Mac. It's been installed for years already, but you can switch over to it, and it basically gives you a bunch of plugins for different programming languages and frameworks or to control your Spotify or give you some interesting, helpful tools to help give you some interesting shortcuts and tools to kind of speed up and optimize your developer experience on the command line. But also there's a bunch of nice themes that comes with it. So there's a lot of different ways of coloring and adding different types of emojis and icons to help enhance the experience to make it, I think, uh, quite a bit more delightful. And so that, that was a project that started back in 2009 uh, and open source it back then, and it's it's taken off in its own crazy way. And it's a small facet of my life. It's one of I think it maybe makes the top six projects that I focus on in my life right now. But it, it's it's definitely been one of the more wider, widely known projects that I've I've, I've had a part in and hand in and helping organize over the years. It's really interesting to me that the word maintainer is usually used for someone who is working on open source software, but not necessarily for someone who's working on like a legacy enterprise application. Why do you think that is? 
Hmm. That's a good question. I know that uh, I recently GitHub sent me a nice uh, hoodie that has the word maintainer on it. And I'm like, this is interesting from like, because I already consider myself a maintainer, but on the open source level, I think it's always been there because there's, there's always been kind of a, there's been a history in open source projects where different people might take over and take over the maintenance of a project. And so they'll kind of like pass around or Sometimes it's not, it's very, it's not uncommon for someone to create a new project, open source it for a couple of years and go, okay, I'm, I, I had my use for it. I moved on to some other things. I don't really use it anymore, especially if you're like building like a library for a specific programming language or framework. Maybe you're using a new technology stack now at a new job. And so you don't need to worry about that anymore. So you're like, I don't want to keep this updated, but so there's a bunch of other people that are dependent on it. So someone might volunteer to continue maintaining it. And so that's pretty common. So like almost each we have currently uh, a couple of uh, primary maintainers and, uh, you know, we've had thousands of people volunteer and contribute to the project. And then in the software world, I think we just see ourselves as software engineers, software developers, where we develop, we build code, or, and I think the, the main maintenance part of that, I think is a little less discussed, you know, kind of, again, why I think this is a topic that I wanted to start focusing on with this podcast, but the, I think there's a certain level of it maybe maybe in a weird way people kind of see in my opinion i think people maybe look down on the idea of maintaining things is just kind of keeping things alive or maybe less valuable or it's like you know hiring someone to maintain your garden like a gardener versus a landscape designer like one of those has a perceived higher value. Like someone needs to plan this and you might not have the same person that comes up with the vision to be the same person that's pulling the, the weeds out two years later, you know, and, and, and not that I, I don't actually even have a yard to have a land, but to use that as an example there. So I think that we see that as being maybe a lower cost, lower value contribution, like, oh, that's easier to interchange those people. But I don't know if that's always the case. And so you might have building maintenance or it's not the same people that build the building. And I think in our industry, we kind of have this, in a weird way, everybody kind of glamorizes software development as being the architect, being the builder, you're the creator. When I honestly, I don't know, I don't have any data points in front of me, but I would guesstimate that 80, 90% of the time, most software developers are maintaining things and helping you iterate and improve things a little bit at a time, switching the light bulbs out, improving the workflow or figuring out why the gutters aren't, you know, draining properly on the house, you know, that's what we primarily do as in our industry, but we all want to like there's this weird romanticized aspect of our industry of being like we're these problem-solving, creative, brilliant-minded architects and there are some of us that can have the opportunity to do that in industry. I'm not one of those people personally. I might have created an open source project using a cobbled together a bunch of things, but that was more of like probably building an interesting shed that a bunch of people wanted to take advantage of the shed. I didn't, I don't know how to build the house. So I think that's an interesting, I wish our industry felt more comfortable thinking of ourselves as, for lack of a better term, maybe like blue collar in a way. Cause I think we like to think, well, we're these super brilliant minded people. Not that I don't, I'm not saying we're not, but I, th I feel like we're somehow like, it becomes like a weird class thing for me. And maybe this gets down to my inner, like anarchist part of me as well. It's just, I, I have, I struggled thinking like we're contributors, we're workers in a, in an industry. And 
we're not stop romanticizing ourselves to do these big ambitious things. Some of us can get to do that. And I think, and, but not all of us are want to spend all of our time thinking about code every day. I know like the other day, someone posted something on Twitter about like, why doesn't your GitHub look like this? And it showed like their GitHub contribution chart entirely green. Like they've made contributions every day over the last several months. And I was like, why are we even asking people to do that? And I'm like, I feel like it's, that's that's interesting for you personally, but don't make the other developers feel bad because I, mean, I have spots of green on mine and I have a really large open source project. I feel comfortable with that. I'm not guilty. I don't feel guilty about that. I don't feel like that makes me look bad. Every time someone applies for a job at Planet Argon, I'm not looking at their open source contributions to rank up how good of a software developer is. I think that's a wrong metric to look at. That just You're going to find other people that just spend all their time thinking and writing code. And I don't think that's imp- that's as valuable. Like, what else are you doing in the world? How else are you contributing? Like, what other types of skill sets do you have that you can bring to the table? Like taking notes or being a journalist or a baker. Like, those things are really interesting. And I think it provides a lot of other perspectives and value to the work that we do. Because I think we're missing that. We need more of that in the in our industry. But also, I think knowing and seeing it as a trade. This is it's simply a trade a lot of people can come in and be part of this. And so I don't want to kind of remove any sort of uh, gatekeeping that I might see in the, in the industry for sure. Yeah, I think that that gatekeeping aspect is huge. It seems in some ways to maybe insulate software development, you know, kind of breaking into this industry. And you hear it sometimes in the clients that we are talking to that there's this like mysticism about what it is that the developer does. And that it seems like sometimes that like, protects the developers in their role or kind of isolates them in some way from what it is that they're doing. And I don't know, as, as development becomes more widespread, as you know, writing code and maintaining code becomes more of a part of normal business life, I wonder how much longer that mysticism will stick around. I think if we know that a lot of people can contribute to it and we remove the, uh, this help remove the illusion that it's some magic trick that we're doing, I think the mysticism, I think, is a good way to kind of phrase that there. The more people know, like, okay, we're making some small little changes here and there to something. Uh, there's another thing I've kind of opinionated about. Is I don't like that we call ourselves as working in tech as, like, this generalized label. Who, who does it? Does a plumber not work with technology of some sort? Like, at what point did electricians no longer work in tech? I don't, I don't know. I don't, it just it, it, That part baffles me. Like, we're all part of one separate group somehow because we all know how to write type some text into different text editors and hit the run button or or run some command from our command line or run something on a server. Like that part feels weird to me as well. So I think I like to see us figure out a way to get away from that. Cause I think there's how do we distinct the people that are working and they have a specialization in like we might say like finance or like doctors work with technology. You know, I don't I don't understand that as like a it's a weird another sort of like barrier i think that we surround ourselves with and i don't i know what the answer there is but i think at some point that needs to go away and we're like okay this is a person that's interacting with the technology web application and doing some work not part of tech or they they're kind of part of tech or are we saying that we're you're not part of tech because you're not a coder and it was like, oh, but then we ended even other layers like, well, you're just a front end developer or maybe you're just doing HTML and CSS. There's all these different little layers like what you're not really part of the inside club. And I'm, not, I'm all for like, let's all become be part of it. But I think at some point we need to then figure out like, well, how do we actually not that we need to separate ourselves necessarily, but how do we at least 
better categorize this group of work that we're doing. So be like, okay, we do this type of work, you do that part, and we're all codependent on making the whole system work. Because coders aren't, at the end of the day, they're not the ones selling it. They're not the ones marketing it oftentimes. So like without the people that are selling and marketing their product, then those products have no value. So it's it's a it's a collective organization thing that I think we need just to figure out as a as an industry and kind of take that chip off our shoulder, I think. Wow, yeah, that's that's really interesting. As you were talking about like plumbers working with tech, electricians working with tech, of course. And it seems almost like maybe part of the definition in our like cultural mind is that if we're used to it, if we accept it, if it's doesn't have the novelty attached to it anymore, or it maybe has some sort of invisibility involved that we no longer see it as tech. But like the wheel is technology. Fire is in a way technology if we're controlling it. I hadn't thought about that before. So what is your current take on our industry metaphor, technical debt? Do you use the term well, I mean, I use it a lot on the podcast for sure. I think I probably that's probably where I talk about it the most. <laughs> so do you use it in your personal <laughs> sphere? Yeah, it's more of in response to people on the team talking about technical debt in projects. So we're talking with clients about working through on cleaning up existing, say, messes or something or things that are holding, impairing us from moving forward. So I don't know that I have a super strong, I don't feel like it's a, a metaphor that I need to implore a lot, but it's it's something that I think there's a lot of people have different takes on it. And at the moment, my current read on that, or my, you know, as I look up in my little internal mental dictionary is, what seemed to me technical debt is when you're making a conscious decision to take maybe uh, a certain path within the software architecture or development that's you're probably going to need to spend some time later coming back in and refactoring or, or addressing at some point. Like this will might get it. This will this will be good enough for now, but this isn't going to be good enough for us in like a year or two from now. And you you know that, but you're like, okay, this is the MVP approach for this right now. Let's move this, ship this, and then we should, we probably need to spend some time later on coming back and revisiting this. So I think there's that part of it. Sometimes it gets a little weird, or I've, I don't think it relates to code that's maybe bad looking to read. I think that is just bad code to read. And the question is, you need to go make changes in that area of the code base very often or not. Like there's a number of, I can think of there's certain projects that we we work on where there's some areas where they've been working for years and years and years, and we never really have to touch it, but we're like, we don't really understand how it all works together. It's a little confusing. We might want to refactor it so we can better understand it, but until we really need to make a lot of changes there, let's just let it run and do its thing and until it causes a problem with prevent if it's preventing us from upgrading versions of something that could become I think that's at that point it becomes a technical debt barrier or maybe falls into that category. But if we don't really need to change it, then let's just let's be okay with it. Move on and let's not replicate it. Like don't be the thing that you go use as a reference for doing it again. Like here's here's let's not do it if like let's replace like if we're working on another project and we want to learn from a different project, here's how not to do it maybe, but what can we take that's actually working here? So and I get that there can be like maybe some challenges like if when especially when you're inheriting projects and you want to like run it through a linter and maybe the previous developer had some really awkward conventions for an area of the code base, you could go through and try tidying that all up. But until you really need to work on that area a lot, maybe that could just be part of your exception. Like, okay, let's ignore those 
that, that collection of files from our linting move on until we actually need to address this at some point. You might put a note in there being like, this is why we're not changing it right now. And that's like, you're continuing to have that technical debt, but I don't know that you always need to like, I don't think there's a point in an application where there's zero technical debt and that should be an okay thing. But I don't think it's, I think developers often mislabel it as, mislabel bad code or things they don't understand or things they disagree with as technical debt when it's just a, it's, a, it's more of a, cognitive debt thing where they don't understand the they don't understand it enough to feel confident about making changes to it but again if you don't have to make changes to it then just let it ride for now i think it's probably not the most valuable thing you can do for that project right now are you on team refactor or team rewrite definitely on team refactor it's funny we actually worked on a rewrite ourselves over the last year and i remember when it was something the client advocated for and I was like, are you sure? And like, I don't know. And we actually, we pulled it off. We did a good job with it. And I feel like it's a good success story. But I I also remember plenty of rewrite projects that did not go well. So definitely some some sore memories there. There's a lot of, rewrites are, are really complicated. And because you don't always know, especially if you didn't work on the project end to end from the beginning. And even if you did, you probably don't remember all the stuff you needed to add, all these weird little edge cases in the code. That stuff is really hard to estimate on replicating. And unless you're going to really rescale, scale down the, the scope of what you're doing um, and remove a bunch of functionality and features and just narrow things down. But even, but at that point, I feel like it's quite often like, I feel like a developer sometimes will get to this point where they feel like it would just be easier if we could just start over again. And I think sounds simple enough. Like if we could just do this over again, we'd do this so much better this next time. We're we're not really good at estimating things in general, but like that is like such a simple thing to say. But then depending on how large the application, you might be needing to maintain the existing thing in parallel to the the new thing where you're working on it, and so that's going to keep deviating. And it's hard to keep momentum. And so then you maybe you have a different team working on a new version. And do they have all the same information that the people that are working on the existing one have? How are you going to handle the data migration? How are your custom your users going to feel about it? Is there going to be are you just replacing the application entirely. And I've heard some people on the podcast talk about how if you think it's so much easier to do that, like, or, or maybe breaking things down into microservices, like you're going to write it in a bunch of microservices. If that is somehow seems easier to build a new application with a bunch of microservices, it's going to be easier for you to figure out how to do that in a new application, yet you can't figure out how to refactor and break down some of the existing areas of your code base how are you going to do that when you can't even figure out how to do it in the area that you're already working in? Like you could literally start making some of those changes today if you prioritized it. How do you break these things down? How do you like if you could figure out how to do it in your own application, would that negate the need to actually go through a full rewrite? So I think it's just a matter of when do I think a rewrite might be appropriate? Maybe you're using a technology stack where there's very, very difficult to find anyone that can work with it or it's lacking any sort of consistency or just completely broke away from all conventions. And it was a developer that disagreed with everybody else and didn't work well with others. And there's an application that it's their, their, uh, it's their opus and nobody understands it. Like that might be a good candidate for a rewrite because if they're, that person's no longer around to be helpful with it, then it's going to be hard to try to make sense of what, what the hell was going on there at some point. So Maybe in those types of scenarios, like it's probably what I would be an advocate for more than anything. What non-programming book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? Great question, Kayla. 
Um, so on the way over here, I was thinking about this because there's a couple books that I often refer people to. One of them is like Getting Things Done by David Allen. It was really helpful for me on just on a, like a productivity level. But I think a really valuable one in the last, say, five or six years that I read was called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And he was a, a hostage negotiator as a profession. And he wrote a book about negotiating. And I thought that was really interesting because it helped me think about a lot of my dynamics and conversations with different people in different stressful situations, whether it be clients or with employees or, you know, other people anywhere in my life. Maybe as a side story, one day I'll share a story about how um, I had a, I was blackmailed over the internet once because someone wanted to have me hand over a Twitter handle that I owned. And so I got to use negotiating tactics in that process. Uh, that's a whole other story for another day, but uh, it was right it was around the same time that I, I just finished reading the book. I feel like that book, Never Split the Difference, was it's, it's it talks a lot about empowering the people that you're talking to, giving them, have, giving them a lot of agency to control a situation that you're kind of navigating. And I think... You know, I think an impulse is to try to solve problems, especially as a problem solver myself and as software developers, we're, we're always trying to solve problems. And a kind of a takeaway from this book was when you're trying to work out something with other people and there's some conflict or disagreement about something, putting them in the position of making the decision and having control rather than being your idea, having it be their decision to make. It was a good book for me to read at the time, and I recommended it to a bunch of people. And actually, coincidentally, my fiance just purchased the uh, masterclass that Chris Voss did on that, and we're going to watch that together soon too. And it's not that I'm like looking to negotiate with a bunch of people; it's just thinking about dealing with those dynamics of different people, especially when there's some contention potentially, and like how do you help the other person succeed in that scenario and help mainly to move the conversation forward and things like that. So that that would be my recommendation. Wow, that's that's exciting. I'm I'm going to check that out. I mean, even just thinking about the conversation we've had today, there's so much negotiation involved in maintaining software in in refactoring or rewriting an application. I mean, it's almost like negotiating and decision making kind of go hand in hand. So, where can people stay in touch with you? I, I occasionally blog on the Planet Oregon blog or on Medium or Dev.2, and I usually kind of cross-post across those. You can find me at Robbie Russell. That's Robbie with a Y, and I'm on Robbie Russell. Yeah, Robbie Russell on Twitter. Pretty easy to find there, or maintainable.fm also to continue hearing great conversations like this. Great. As part of the Maintainable podcast, you've also started Maintainable Rails. Can you tell folks what that's all about? Yeah, it's a it's basically a free email course where I will it's like it's a sequence. So anytime you sign up, it's not like a regular newsletter where you just get the same everybody gets the email on the same day. It's basically a I kind of drip feed you some different tidbits on how to tackle things in your Ruby on Rails application that you may not always be thinking about. And some of the stuff you might be like, yes, I'm already doing that great. But I'm hoping that I can kind of spark some ideas on things that you might not be, your team might not be accounting for right now in your application just to make things a little bit more maintainable. So you can find that um, if you search for maintainable Rails and we'll include a link in the show notes as well for that. Well, Ravi, thank you so much for being on the show today, for having the microphone turned to face yourself and for inviting me on as a guest host. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure, Kayla. Thank you so much for doing this as well. Uh, I think this is going to be the 60th episode that I think we published, and I thought it would be, we thought it would be a good idea to, um, yeah, turn the turn the microphone around a little bit and kind of give some of my perspective, but then also get to know a little bit about you as well. So thanks for being part of this and putting so much time and thought into a good conversation. 
My pleasure. Oh, 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 oh.